You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Arjun Murthy. Actually, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, you are. Good. I'm half Indian, so it's especially embarrassing when I pronounce oh. Indian names wrongly. But I grew up completely in the West, so um, <laughs> <laughs> my Indian cultural credentials are a bit rusty. Um, and by the way, for the for that on that note, am I pronouncing your name correctly, Iona? Yes, that's perfect. Okay, great. Arjun runs a uh, website called The Factual. Um, it has a podcast, a blog, um, and it is a, a curated news site um, where you can, where you evaluate articles based on four criteria, the quality of the site, the expertise of the author, the quality of the sources, and how opinionated or otherwise the article is, and give the give those articles a credibility grade. And the idea, as I understand it, Arjun, is, is um, give people a kind of, some kind of guidelines after which they can read the articles for themselves and decide, of course, for themselves how credible they find the, sto- the sources. But you base all of those, um, all of those scores on um, objective, specific objective measures uh, could you maybe start by uh, talking more about your procedure when you're evaluating articles and, and how you score them and how that all works? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Iona, for uh, welcoming me to the show. I'm delighted to be here and slightly intimidated by your credentials, to be totally honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why? That's the first. <laughs> um, well, I love uh, English. I wasn't, I don't think I'm particularly great at it or certainly wasn't in school. So to see your background in it, um, first of all, I'm envious because you've got to read a lot of amazing books over your career. And I wish I could do that. Maybe there's still time. Um, But in any case, uh, yeah, delighted to be here and happy to explain the factual. You know, at a high level, what the factual is trying to do is help people sort through the torrent of news every day. Uh, Roughly speaking, in the United States alone, there's about 10,000 news articles published every day. And that's a lot for people to see random stuff in their newsfeed. So how do you make sense of it? How do you decide what to read? Um, and so we wanted to have an easy, consistent, and transparent way for people to find the best stories to read. And we defined the best stories to read based on what people told us they wanted. So they said, you know, we asked people, what do you like about the news? What do you dislike? And they said the four things that you just said, Iona. So they said, you know, I like stories that are really well-researched because isn't that what the news is all about? It should be really you know, good evidence on it. Um, they said, I don't like a lot of opinionated stories. I feel like everything's opinionated these days. I want to have the facts so that I can reach my own conclusions. And then they said, I want it to be written by someone who knows what they're talking about. 
not some fly by night uh, person in Macedonia or you know some author who does politics one day and sports the next, uh, and then on a reputable site. And so we took those four comments and we turned it into software. So my background's in software engineering, as is my co-founder, and very naively, I suppose, uh, we thought, let's see if software can help with this problem. And so we built a, a fairly sophisticated algorithm and AI engine that evaluates news articles on those four dimensions uh, consistently the same way every day. And it does it about 10,000 times a day and then groups it by topics and finds the highest scoring stories. And uh, what's very interesting about this is that unlike every other newsfeed in the world, our system doesn't care how popular an article or a source is. So if you think about every newsfeed in the world today, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or even Google for that matter, there's some sort of popularity rating that's baked in, that likes, hearts, tweets, backlinks, you know, even backlinks in a sense, uh, which is a big signal for Google, is a popularity uh, metric because you link back to the sites that are the most popular. But in our system, we don't care how popular you are or not because we realize that when it comes to news, the most credible news isn't necessarily at the most popular sites. It could be at sites uh, that really specialize in a topic where the authors know what they're talking about. And so we built this engine, uh, like I said, it runs 10,000 times a day. And the upshot is it finds incredibly beautiful writing, very rich, very detailed, very informative, uh, very factual on a wide, wide range of sites. Uh, and for that matter, including uh, Ario Magazine, which uh, you're the editor of Iona. And so, oh, thank you. <laughs> and so it's, um, it's a great way for people to discover great journalism, not always at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Those are not bad, and they certainly get good grades from time to time, but that there is great writing being written elsewhere. And if you really want to understand a topic and you want to see all the different angles across the political spectrum, um, then that factual is going to help you do that easily. I think it's extremely useful. Um, I mean, at Aria, we we basically we don't do news reporting, and um, one reason that I stick very much to opinionated to opinion pieces to commentary pieces um, is because I think that the news is the sort of basis, um, and after that, the commentary is um, commentary is more subjective. Um, the kind of lines and the attitudes that you can take, but it's important that there is some kind of basis in fact, and um, and the for for the factual stuff to be well done, you need on the ground reporters, you need fact checkers, you need to um, the the entire kind of system, our entire ability to think seriously about issues is based fundamentally at the bottom of that pyramid is knowing what is actually happening. And yet it seems to be one of the trickiest areas in which to find accurate information. Yeah, that's right. You know, what we are trying to espouse is uh, saying it's not inherently bad if an article has opinion um, mm -hmm. or frankly, even bias to some degree, you know, ultimately we're human. And all humans have some frame of reference based on their upbringing, their background, their environment, which is where it tends to introduce some form of bias. Um, and sometimes people really know a topic and feel like they want to voice an opinion in it. What our system is saying is as a, as a function of the length of the article and 
the sources and citations in the article, is the opinion sort of justified? So it's okay to have some opinion if you back it up with facts. That's effectively what the algorithm is trying to say. And so what you'll find is that sometimes opinionated pieces um, can score reasonably well because the author brings a ton of facts and shows a lot of complexity and nuance in the argument, uh, even as they introduce some of their own opinionated statements in it. And that seems to be a good balance for readers. They don't mind opinion, but make sure that you bring the facts. Don't just sort of spout off the cuff. And then as a reader, you're really just trusting in this one journalist whom you may or may not know very well. Could you tell us a bit more about how you technically come up with the scores, with the different scores in the four categories? Sure. So behind the scenes, it's a fairly sophisticated uh, algorithm and machine learning engine. And so I'll speak without getting too technical, but uh, the first element that the article, that the engine looks at is sources and citations and quotes. And so it... uh, Every day, we, you know, we have this engine, a crawler, effectively, that crawls these thousands of articles on all these sites and pulls it into the engine. And then the engine extracts all the salient features. So author tags, metadata, source tags, links, quotes, everything. It pulls it apart. And then it applies a set of algorithms to it. So on the links, it looks at how many links there are, how diverse they are. And if the sites that you link to are themselves reputable um, and authoritative on this topic. So uh, maybe an algorithm to compare to, all of us are familiar with Google. Google tends to care about who who links to you. So if the New York Times links to REO magazine, then REO starts to look much better in the eyes of Google. What we do is sort of the reverse of that. We say, who do you choose to link to? Because as a journalist, you can link to authoritative sites and back up your facts or back up your your point of view um, that you're writing the article. So it's sort of page rank in reverse, effectively. And it looks at quotes and and length of quotes and and number of quotes and all these sorts of things and assigns a grade for evidence. Um, So that's one quarter of the grade, roughly speaking. It varies a little bit based on the type of article, but roughly speaking, that's it. Then there's another piece, which is the tonal analysis. So there's a set of algorithms called natural language processing algorithms, NLP. And so we've built our own NLP engine that it's sort of an English grammar heuristic, uh, if anything. So maybe Iona, you probably particularly like this. It sort of looks at the grammar and um, has a bunch of things like, you know, first person pronouns and adverbs and all kinds of other um elements that suggest this is opinionated versus objective. It also looks at the types of words chosen. So there are dictionaries of the emotional content of words. Um, sort of a fancy way of just saying is, is, a, is a word likely to be used in an in a opinion, emotional manner, or in a sort of con- factual, neutral, information-conveying manner. And so all of this, and it runs this algorithm and gives a, spits out a score for how opinionated it is. And the less opinionated you are, the higher your score. And by the way, the algorithm is also sophisticated and knows not to include quotations in this analysis. So you can quote people and their quotes can be highly emotional, but that's not counted against the article because that's a, that's a source. Um, 
And then you start to get into the AI bits with the next two factors. So the next thing it looks at is author expertise. And what it does is it classifies every article written um, into one of a thousand different topic level. And it says, uh, and it builds this database of every journalist and every topic they've ever written. So then it looks at when an article comes up, it says, has this journalist written on this topic before? And when they have, was it well-researched and was it very opinionated or not? And do they write extensively on this topic or perhaps even exclusively on this topic? All of which goes into an expertise grade. So it then says, this journalist is really thorough and consistent in writing about X topic. And so that really helps us identify who are the best journalists by topic. And at this point, we now have a database of about 50,000 journalists uh, around the world and what they are really good at writing on. And so our system then helps to elevate those journalists on their topic um, of expertise. And then finally, a source reputation, which is an average grade for all the articles from that site. Um, it's a floating score, so it varies over time. And basically, he's trying to say, is this site known to produce high-quality work? And so those four grade factors are then combined in different ratios, depending on the type of article. So political articles have a different weighting set than something like a sports article or an entertainment article, for example. Um, and the upshot of it is you find the, this great writing, like I said, on the long tail of the internet, the, the smaller sites a lot of times. That's really interesting. And I, I love the idea that it's going against the usual, um, the usual thing, which is uh, that popularity is taken as a, a kind of stand-in for reliability. This is something that I have uh, talked about with other, with other guests as well uh, in the field of science, in particular. That um, as soon as a um, a scientist has written a popular book and that book has gained a particular degree of traction, suddenly everybody is citing them um, and everyone relies on the fact that the other people citing them who are generally reliable people think that they are reliable and therefore they must be reliable. There's this kind of um, um, game of Chinese whispers going on. Yeah. And often the original research is is very shoddy. And even in a few notorious cases, actually debunked or retracted. Um, the one that I, um, the example I've always give is uh, Matthew Walker, who's written a book on uh, sleep. I think it's called Why Why We Sleep. Hmm. Um, uh, here at home, we joke about, we always refer to him as debunked former scientist Matthew Walker. <laughs> um, because uh, that book is based on, on studies that were, um, that have been shown to have been uh, flawed and, and poorly done in many ways. But nevertheless, now that has escaped from the kind of realm of scientific scrutiny into the mainstream and all kinds of extremely respectable people, including respectable former scientists, are citing it. So things, a popularity comes to uh, something, a pop, the popularity of a particular piece of writing stands in for its credibility. Because uh, more and more people who are credible themselves are vouching for it. And then it just kind of accretes credibility as it goes along. And very few people actually go back and look at the source itself. That's right. I don't yeah. know whether it's analogous in, 
whether you've noted analogous examples in in news. Um, yes, definitely. And so, um, you know, the, the the biggest thing that we see with news is, yeah, there's a herd mentality there as well. Um, and we combat this in a couple of ways. So one of the brilliant things that uh, is true about news is it's a highly competitive marketplace. And uh, especially across the political spectrum, journalists are trying to outdo each other sometimes. So of course, there's good and bad of this. And sometimes they're unduly competitive and um, and not collaborative. But in other times, what we see is that you get journalists challenging what seems like the prevailing sentiment. And this is particularly true on either side of the political spectrum. So what you'll see is if the political left believes something, a lot of times the political right might challenge it or vice versa. And from a reader standpoint, this is good for the reader. Uh, you know, I'll take a step back and say that our algorithm, as uh, powerful as it is, actually cannot tell you if something is true or false. That is an incredibly difficult thing to do for a computer and requires tremendous context and history, which um, is computationally very, very difficult. What we can do is we can say this article has all the elements and characteristics of something that's highly credible and factual. And therefore, we've sort of cut out a lot of the junk. We've left you with a handful of good articles. And across this set, you're going to find the facts and the answers. And so I say this because part of what we're also trying to do is to get people to uh, think critically about the news and have a simple way of understanding and evaluating the credibility of news on their own, even if the factual were not there. So our ratings engine, our system, our algorithm, it's all very transparent. You can click on any article's grade and see why it got that grade and, and what the algorithm thought of it. And effectively saying, this is just a rubric and a way of thinking about news credibility. Um, use it as a guide, as a rule of thumb, if it helps you, you know, filter out the junk, but also use it when the factual is not around. And all this is to say, uh, you know, and, and, and what we add after that is we say, you know, even when you get a great grade, sometimes there's still going to be bias because again, there's a frame of reference from the author. So to finally combat that, what we always recommend and curate in our system is multiple highly rated articles from across the political spectrum. And so when you do that, then we start to get at the point you raised earlier, Iona, which is that you can have sort of this herd mentality and everyone saying, oh, well, this article came out, it's highly authoritative. Well, usually on the other side of the political spectrum, there's someone that wants to challenge that and sometimes has a very good argument on why we should challenge it. And when we put these together as a set, because we always group articles by topics and, and the set of articles for that topic, then the, then the reader comes away with uh, sort of a better critical understanding of this issue. And I hope what they really see is most often that there are no easy answers to the big issues in the news. Everything is actually quite complicated. There's um, pros and cons of all policy ideas. And it's seldom that, oh, that's so obvious, we should do it. Um, that's what I hope people come away with. And maybe it stems a little bit of the, let's just believe the herd, because everything I saw on all my favorite sites was saying this. We want to show that actually there's this dissenting opinion that's highly credible um, that's related on this topic, and let's bring that to the forefront as well. It seems to me that that might be, um, I've never thought of it in this way before, but it just occurred to me that that's an advantage which politics has over, say, science, 
one advantage it has is that the adversarial nature of politics does mean that everything that people assert is um, is very strongly scrutinized. Whereas popular, I mean, a science in the lab is is also often heavily scrutinized, not always, um, because of various publishing pressures and there are other reasons why funding um, restrictions, there are other reasons why not everything is is well scrutinized. Um, But once you get, once a kind of scientific idea becomes popularized, often almost everybody believes it, those who don't are considered to be mavericks and cranks, and may of course also be mavericks and cranks, because there's no there isn't really a constituency of people, for example, who are anti-sleep <laughs> or um, and who would therefore have a vested interest in critiquing Matthew Walker, uh, to give that example. Um, but there, there is clearly a, um, a group of a vested people who have a vested interest in questioning the information presented by the other side of the political aisle. And that is actually quite useful because it means that everything is, it, it means that everything is subjected to a kind of ferocious scrutiny. Um, and that is, helps to prevent us from falling into a complacent credibility about things. I think so. Um, you know, it's also sometimes done in bad faith. Sometimes journalists might mm. challenge a prevailing assumption just for the sake of it. And um, so you can say that's muddying up the waters uh, and that's not right. But um, yeah, on science, you know, I think there are there are people that challenge the prevailing wisdom. It's just that they struggle sometimes to get any sort of coverage. So let's take one of the most obvious examples, which is climate change. And you always see the site, the statistic of 97% of all scientists support this or 99 or whatever the ridiculous number is. Um, And then there's a small set of people that challenge it. And like you said, the truth is some of those people are probably challenging in bad faith and may may be doing it just for um, the sake of press or publicity. But sometimes people do challenge it in good faith. Uh, and I think one of the more notable names I can think of is um, the physicist Dyson, I think. He's an English physicist. Mm. And yes. he famously challenges uh, climate change, not because he says it's not occurring, but because he's unclear of the causality with how much human activity is the primary driver of this. And hence, if I'm not certain of that, then I'm not certain what the solutions are and whether scaling back human um uh, human sort of civilization's work is going to is going to solve the problem, and so you know he doesn't get a whole lot of coverage, but he did get covered in the New York Times. There was a long uh, interview with him there, and so I think the truth is that um, in science, perhaps more than journalism, you need a certain standing, whether it's tenure or awards or something, to have the confidence to go against the establishment. Otherwise, it might just destroy your career in its infancy. I think mm-hmm. that's less the case in journalism. No one's going to mm. burn you because you challenged something that turned out not to be true. It's like, okay, well, you were doing your job. I mean, if as long as it was in good faith, that's fine. That's the nature of journalism. I think perhaps that's we're not as forgiving in science, but I'm not a scientist. That's just a hypothesis. Yeah, it's more like in journalism, there's an inbuilt adversarial system 
And that does lead to uh, polarization and it can destroy friendships and it can make people uh, view things in it. Um, it can handicap people from viewing things in a dispassionate manner um, and it can hinder us in our search for truth. But on the other hand, it does mean that it is not only always possible, but always kind of wel welcome to challenge the narrative because there are always two at least two competing narratives, or roughly speaking, there are generally always two competing narratives, the left and the right. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's, you know, I, I hearken back to an algorithm that my father used when he read the news, and probably most of the people from his generation did. I, I grew up in Nigeria, of all places, uh, and um, my dad, we would get a couple of newspapers delivered to our house every day. Uh, actually three. And I asked him once, I'm like, dad, why do you read three? Why not just read one? And he looked at me and he said, well, because you'd never just trust one source. You've got to read a few different viewpoints to understand it. And really at the heart of it, that is kind of what the factual is doing. You know, we're giving you a bunch of different viewpoints that are highly credible from across political spectrum so that you can see the complexity, see the different angles, see dissenting opinions, and then empower people to reach the right decision. And this, by the way, is perhaps somewhat heresy in the world of news, because a lot of news sites, I feel, somewhat talk down to the reader. They sort of spoon feed the answer and tell you, you need to be angry about X, or you should be up in arms about Y. It's so obvious. And uh, what we say is, no, we're just going to give you all the data, all the facts. You'll reach your own conclusions. And the majority of you are going to read, quote, the right logical conclusions. Not everyone. There's always going to be some skeptic, some person on the fringes that disagrees with conventional wisdom. That's okay. But the majority are going to reach the right conclusions and help society advance in whatever policy decision making we're doing. And that's it. Then we've done our job. Um, I think that's very different than what a lot of news sites do. And one reason why our customers like the factual is we don't care to lead the user or the reader rather, we don't care to give them the answer because sometimes there isn't a neat answer. And we're, we feel that most people, regardless of their educational background, if they're given the facts and a quiet place to think, most of the time they're going to reach the right answer. Hmm. Or there may be more than one answer to reach. That's right. That's right. But the other outcome of it is that whatever answer you reach, you're not going to you would have come through first on your own process, which is good because you have buy-in on the answer. And you're perhaps less likely to hate or dislike someone who reached a different conclusion mm. because you mm. understand, oh, I got it. Yeah, I was kind of puzzled by that, but this is where I sort of fell on, you know, this is where I ended up on that issue. Um, one of the things that we do at The Factual is we have a daily poll and discussion. And uh, it's fascinating. We get you know somewhere between 500 and 1,000 votes every day, and it's on some policy issue that's trending in the news. Um, so the poll gives a quantitative sense of reader sentiment. And our readers are spread all across the states, across all socioeconomic classes and demographics. So it's a really nice cross-section of the U.S. Um, so we get a really interesting quantitative feel. And then the comments are fascinating. So the comments are anonymous, which allows people to be very honest about how they feel. But the comments are highlighted and, and sort of um, sorted based on comment quality, again, rather than popularity. And we have a number of very interesting signals on this front, one of which is we track people's reading patterns. So you're anonymous, but we get to see if you're a regular reader of the factual, do you read news on a consistent basis? And if you do, maybe you know something. 
And if you don't, well, maybe you don't know something. And so what we're trying to infer is which of these commenters actually knows what they're talking about. And so that's one signal and, and the actual comment sort of context and tone and citations, all this factors in. So again, the AI kicks in. And the upshot of all this is, first of all, you get very civil uh, disagreements and discussions, which is rare in today's internet era. Um, you get to see why people voted differently than you and, quote, understand the other side. And what often happens is people see that if even when you vote differently, you're not a quack. In fact, a lot of times you have the same outcome that you want as I do. We just voted a different way, but you're not, you're not nuts. And that to me is ultimately what I really want the factual to help society see is that no matter what we think about issues, whether we vote Republican or uh, Democrat or whatever, conservative or liberal in any country, most of us want the same things in life. Most of us actually have a very common value set. We're not that different, no matter what our skin color or, or outside exterior looks like. Um, we want the same sorts of things if we're a, away from the performative scene of social media. And um, I'm hoping that it, it helps people see our shared humanity rather than think of every issue as being adversarial, polarized, and we have nothing in common. Mm. I think um, I in one of the interviews I was uh, I listened to that you gave about the factual. One of the things you said was that um, you wanted to provide as well as a place where people could evaluate new sources um, and more easily curate new sources and decide what they wanted to read. You also wanted to provide people with a place to talk about news. And you said that you and your your friends um, no longer talked about news on Facebook at all. Um, and, uh, and I completely empathize with that. So I, I use Facebook quite often to stay in touch with friends and things. But I would, um, and occasionally I share ARIO articles, but even when I share the articles, People, when people comment, if they disagree, I just like their comment and just silently don't say anything. <laughs> I'm absolutely terrified because um, real life friends are on there and family members, and I don't want to get into some um, vicious uh, fight with any of them. That's right. And I have seen fights, arguments over politics turn nasty incredibly quickly on Facebook. And I have seen real life friendships and even love relationships and things ended over, uh, over a single comment on a, on a news item or a political essay. And um, Twitter is in a sense much better in that regard, because on Twitter, you are mostly talking to strangers. Um, and I do have a few friends from real life who are on Twitter. Um, some of whom I blocked, actually. Um, I blocked them because I know them in real life, so I don't want them to see my Twitter. <laughs> um, but Twitter is also, you don't have room to talk about things in depth. And the very short back and forth structure of Twitter makes it extremely adversarial. And, uh, um, and also the way that the algorithm rewards the more sensational and the kind of cheaper and the more hyperbolic utterances and reward sort of deliberate misreadings of things and, and stuff like that. 
So I think it's fascinating that you've provided this very different community. Um, and I'm listening and taking notes to see if we can do something similar, Ario. That so would thank be, you. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I, you know, at, um, at its simplest, human beings, we like to talk about the news. It's sort of a, it's part mm-hmm. of the social fabric of life. We like to discuss, oh, did you hear? Did you see? What did you think? Oh my God, I know. It's very common. And everything you just said, you know, that we're terrified of speaking about the news now in the online spaces we typically hang out with. And, and now even in the offline spaces, you know, in the last few years, particularly because of COVID, um, everything feels polarized and sensitive. Um, school, go- school board meetings have become nasty. Uh, football games have become divisive. Going to the grocery store has become, you know, which store you even shop at. Are you a Whole Foods person? Or are you a Crackle Barrel person? Apparently that speaks volumes to who you are. And so it's so strange that we're living like this where everything feels really hypersensitive. And yet our human natures, we want to talk about these things and discuss it, not because we want the adulation, but we want to find out, are we crazy for thinking this? Do other people think this way? Why do other people think differently, et cetera? And what we're showing is that, yeah, it is possible to have a productive healthy discussion and disagreement online if you have the right incentive structures. And this isn't some sort of academic uridite thing that only highfalutin types are using. Actually, everyday regular folks use it. I mean, the factual has subscribers that are CEOs and homeless people. We have pastors, we have ex-convicts. I mean, it's a grab bag of society. And that's exactly what we always wanted is to show we are not building something for some elitist segment of the population. It's for everyday folks who just want the facts and want to be able to talk about the news in a sane manner. Yeah, it's possible. Arjun, where did your own interest in news stem from? I know you began, um, I know you worked as a paper boy yeah. uh, when you were young. Well, you're still young, obviously. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Um, but when you were even younger, um, practically embryonic. Um, And I wonder whether um, what you feel the real, the impulse is that is, that drives people's strong interest in news, because it's quite surprising in one sense. Um, I I often hear um, life gurus and life coaches and people suggesting that you take a break from the news or uh, stop reading or watching the news altogether, because in most cases, there's not much you can do about the situation. And, um, and it, and it can be feel, feel quite stressful. And it can feel, um, because you are watching important events unfold, but you don't have any direct influence over them, it can make you feel very helpless and frustrated. And it can also lead to arguments with your loved ones if they take a different view of things. Um, so I often hear people suggesting that for most everyday citizens, with the exception of moments at which you can actually um, vote um, or uh, you're actually called upon to take some kind of action for which you need to, which requires you to be reasonably well informed, it's not worth listening to or watching the news? And what would you say in answer to those critics? Yeah, it's a very understandable consideration. And um, 
there's some truth to it. You know, if you don't listen to the news one day, like most of the time, nothing bad is going to happen to you. Um, so there, there's a really good uh, interview on Freakonomics. Uh, it's more than a decade old now. It's uh, New York Times former editor Jill Abramson on why do we read the news? And uh, it's very enlightening. And she basically says, look, there, there are four different reasons why people read the news. So different people are motivated by different things. Uh, one type of person is motivated by the desire to say, I want to hold power accountable. And that's why I read the news. Another person says, I want to read the news because honestly, it's just to kill time, um, something to do, which is one of the segments that sort of, you know, drifted away to the likes of a TikTok or YouTube, which is just far more entertaining. Um, another segment says, I like to be well-informed. I don't want to look stupid when people are talking about something at the water cooler. And I'm like, oh, really? I didn't know that. I didn't hear that. I don't want to be that person. Um, and then I forget the the fourth reason. And so there's different reasons why people choose to read the news and, and different, you know, I, I understand some people, especially the folks that read it really to kill time to say, it's just not that useful to me. And frankly, brings me down because a lot of times it's negative. Um, what I would say is when news is done well, it's informative, it's enlightening, and it makes you feel less anxious about the world around you because you feel like you understand the world and you understand your fellow citizens and neighbors and community members. Um, so you ask me, you know, why, why am I into the news? It's because of that reason. So even before I was a paper boy, I've always liked reading, but when I was a paper boy, and this is back in middle school, and then later on I was uh, editor-in-chief when I was at Stanford, I always thought that, you know, when you do news well, it's just enjoyable. Kick back, read something interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that person's so cool. I admire this or I learned that. And that's goodness. That's that's just nice. It shouldn't, reading a well-researched, thoughtful, balanced piece by someone who knows what they're talking about should be enjoyable rather than anxiety-inducing. But the truth is that most news is anxiety-inducing because it's not great. It's often written in a way that's trying to get a rise out of you, trying to get you to be more emotional and angry about something. And that's the kind of news I wanted to screen out when we were building the factual, is to say, if you do read great writing, you'll feel better. I'm not saying that the issues that are, are sad and awful are going to go away, but you'll understand them better. You'll also see that nearly every instance this isn't the first time we're seeing this. The past, we've seen worse a lot of the times, and we've survived that. So there's precedence for many things. And the world is often getting better in ways that might not be obvious to people. But good journalists do a great job of using data and connecting points in history and giving context and saying, we've seen this before. We beat it before. We're probably going to beat it again. We have to stay vigilant, but it's doable. And you come away with a feeling of at least, if not, uh, you know, hope, but if not that, at least not anxiety. So that's what I think uh, the value of reading good journalism is. And like I said, there is beautiful writing being done today. Our job at The Factual is to find it and make it easy for people to get. And so that they feel like, yeah, you know what? Reading news, it's worth my time. I also think just to balance it out, I don't think news needs to be a read, you know, for hours on end every day. Like that also seems unrealistic and perhaps wrong in some sense. 
uh, unless you need it for your job. You know, read for whatever, 5, 10, 15 minutes a day. Feel like you know what's going on. If you find something interesting, great, by all means, dig into it. But otherwise, that's enough. Put it down and get on with your life, do other stuff. That's healthy. And so the reason that I can say this is because at the factual, we back it up with our business model. You know, we have zero ads on our site and it's a very low cost subscription uh, that's affordable to everyone because we don't want to care about what you read or how much you read and whether you share. None of that matters. We don't even care about views and clicks and likes or any of that nonsense. Um, and at the end of the day, I, you know, uh, one of our investors is saying, do you, you know, do you think about how much time they're spending in your app? And I said, no, not really. I care if they use it regularly. It means that we're giving them something of value. I don't actually care if they spend five minutes or five hours. And I certainly hope they're not spending five hours. Um, because news is not meant to consume your life. It's just meant to give you what's important and give you a sense of the world around you. So sort of a long diatribe of an answer, but hopefully gives you a sense of why I do this and where my love for news comes from and what I hope people get out of uh, reading high quality news. I find it very refreshing that you talk about not getting obsessed with metrics. Um, I think that one of the one of the kinds of problems that people fall into is trying to second guess what will be popular and what other people will like, or trying to trying to improve metrics over which they have no direct control. So um, when I hear you need to increase the number of people reading a specific article or liking a specific article. Um, I, I think, um, I don't think I can increase, I can increase the number. I can do, I can share as, it as widely as possible and publicize it as widely as I have the means to do. And other than that, it's really, it's not my business to force people to read things or uh, to dictate what they should find valuable. I don't know if I'm putting that very well. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, the balance we have to strike as a business is, of course, we need people to be using our service in order for our business to be successful and to grow. Um, we just have to make sure that the right incentives are in place. And so the, the thing we look for is frequency of use and regularity of use, not length of use. Uh, not necessarily so much about depth of use either. Uh, so the idea being that be up to date regularly. That's all we want. We don't care how much or how long you do it. And the part of the metrics that we, or the, the, the implication of this is that we have to continuously innovate to make it easier to get high quality news and fit it into the schedule and places of busy people around the world. So, you know, we started out with uh, a newsletter, which is tremendously successful because it's easy. It shows up in people's inbox at the same time every day. It's a summarized uh, newsletter with lots of easy things to read, and you can be done in five or 10 minutes. Great. Not everyone is an email person, though. So next up, some people really like apps. They keep email for work. They don't want stuff around news in their email. So we built an app and made it really easy for people to read and this app only sends one notification a day for the daily briefing. It does not bother you or interrupt you otherwise, because most things are not that critical. Um, maybe when, you know, if, if something really, really bad is happening that's important for everyone to know, then the system will send out something. But 
I mean, it never really happens. And uh, so great. So we solved those people. Okay, next up, some people are more audio than they are visual people. All right, how can we reach them? And so on and so forth. So the way that I think about it is uh, you constantly need to innovate on product uh, to reach people in the formats they like, when they want it, how they want it, et cetera. That is the responsibility of the business. But it is not our responsibility to say how many articles you read or why didn't you share it as much? Well, I'd like them to share more, but you know, it's, it's less of that issue um, and it's more around let's make it really convenient because we have to be empathetic to the fact that most people are really busy and have mm-hmm. so many competing priorities between children and family and bills and jobs and taking care of extended family and social issues. I mean, a myriad of stuff. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the time they're willing to make for the factual. Let's make that time be very useful and get them out of here quickly. Um, I think that's a different philosophy on running the business. So we do have metrics. It's just not the metrics that most people care about. Yeah, I like it. I'm, I, I noticed um, uh, um, when I was reading the bios on your website that Alexander Banerjee, who looks like a fellow half Indian looking at his little... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm always on, on the lookout for those people. It's our tribe. Um, it says, Alex used to consume too much news to the point of alienating his well-adjusted friends and family. Since joining the factual, he's been able to explore his passion in a healthy way. Um, I rather <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> Alex, is he's awesome. He's, he's kind of my alter ego... Um, so he's the chief editor of The Factual. And and the role really calls for exercising judgment to double check the algorithm. So the algorithm basically mm-hmm. generates everything right. and, and sort of says, these are the recommendations. But the algorithm is never perfect. And sometimes we'll mess up or we'll suggest things that are too similar and don't really show a diversity of opinion. And so then I trust Alex to go and double check and override it. Um, and he, what I love about him is he questions everything. He's constantly like, well, why that? What, what's the evidence behind that? How could you do that? He's not consistently on one political end of the spectrum or the other. Um, he's open to debate and discussion. In fact, he loves it. It's all the things I, I want all news readers to be is a mini Alex. Be questioning, be critical, um, read with your, with your frontal lobe, sort of engage fully, uh, and you'll come away a better person. I mean, Alex is so much fun to just talk to. Have a coffee with him, and it's like the best coffee you'll ever have. He's just—he's cool. He's interesting. That's lovely. I—I'm um, not really pushing back on you uh, very much in this interview. I can't really think of any <laughs> critique because I really like—I—I I, I love what I see on the site. I like the idea of this. I—I um, I like the idea of this project, um, and also it really. Um, so one of my big concerns is the erosion of free speech mm-hmm. through um, the erosion of free speech on, on all sides, but among other things from the tech, big tech monopolies, which are, which use their algorithms and sometimes also uh, real life people behind the scenes to censor information. So this is different from curating. Mm-hmm. Curating is offering people a little collection, like gathering a bouquet of flowers, where censorship is more like um, 
pulling up weeds and putting them onto the bonfire. Um, and it's, I have certainly noticed on Facebook and Twitter that people will get banned for expressing opinions that the algorithm doesn't like, um, or even for misunderstandings over kind of jokes and sarcasm and stuff. And articles will also get taken down uh, for not not conforming to what the algorithm or 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 the people involved think is correct and i am very, and there is really no appeals process mm-hmm. and, and it can feel absolute completely um unfair and arbitrary and that concerns me a lot and i think that there um but i also think it's rather difficult to be just presented with a fire hose of undifferentiated information among which you have all kinds of disinformation and misinformation and cranks and kind of hateful inflammatory diatribes and who knows what. So I think it's important for every individual person's sanity to do some form of curation. Mm-hmm. And um, we all need, um, or most of us, most well, we all need to curate in some way, even if it's just that you say, for example, Oh, I, I'm only reading, I read The Economist every week. Mm-hmm. That's a form of curation. You're just, um, you are selecting from a collection that's already been kind of presented to you. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no way of getting away from that. But I much prefer that model to the model of we need to hide these things from you. We need to do the curation in a kind of negative way by subtracting, uh, viewpoints from the from the media landscape by not allowing you to see and read these things and make your own mind up. That's right. Yeah, I think um, it is a very important issue. And the social media platforms have a degree of culpability here. So I'll empathize with them at first to say, when they set out to build Facebook or Twitter, they never imagined the kind of influence they were going to have. And so mm. the incentive structures they set up for their algorithms and what they were building were never really, they never thought about, well, we should combat misinformation. You know, that's going to be a big deal or hate speech. I don't think they really thought that through. And so now they're in a position where they're the de facto public town square where people want to talk and they do have to enforce uh, better control. So first, let me say that for people operating at the scale that they are, which is in the hundreds of millions or billions of people, it must be hard to do this right. It's a lot easier for me to armchair quarterback when I'm dealing with tens of thousands of people. Hmm. But that said, I do think they get it wrong. Um, And fundamentally, there are a couple of things that I disagree with. The first is that uh, Mark Zuckerberg actually said it right once. He's since recanted, but he said, you know, the best fix for bad speech is good speech or the best solution for bad ideas is to overshadow it with good ideas. And I think he's right, actually. He just either didn't have the political wherewithal or, or maybe technically they couldn't do it. But to me, that's the role that these platforms should play. No one's asking you to be perfectly neutral. I get it. You're a private company. You're going to make decisions that feed your bottom line. But what you could do is when there's information that you identify, your, your systems or your people identify as dangerous, there are things that you can do short of completely shutting it down. Uh, number one, complement it with better information. Say, you know, X is showing this. 
our systems, our people are suggesting that this is not the complete story or this is inaccurate, this is not credible, here's better stuff. They don't do that as much. I know Facebook tried it a little bit. I don't think Twitter tried it very much, um, but they don't do that. I don't know for what reason. Maybe there's controversy there as well. Maybe part of it is that once again, they have to, or they seem to have to assume that people are dumb and we can't risk them reading something that's wrong. So let's just shut it down. And I think that's incorrect. That I, I know there's, there's risk with people reading false information, but that's life. And what we have to do if we're in a position of uh, authority or power in, in one of these platforms is to give them lots of good information and help them see transparently why we're giving them this information. And most people are going to reach the right conclusion. Um, so that's the first thing I think complement or overshadow with good rather than bad information. The second is limit the distribution of bad information. And uh, Twitter actually does do this. I don't know if Facebook does it. Twitter would sometimes disable the retweet button, for example, on some kinds of messaging. I think that's good. And it's saying this information is there in the public town square of, of Twitter, but we are not going to let it spread too far because it seems dangerous. But it's there. If you really go looking, you'll find it. I think that's a better compromise than outright shutting down. Um, and so if you implement those kinds of ideals, then I think the, the you know, you, you sort of have the, 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 the principles of free speech are, are being observed. Um, it's not perfect. I know that some issues are so dangerous. Imagine if, for example, someone was spreading a rumor saying, uh, like Pizzagate, that there's a pedophilia ring occurring in some pizza shop. You just need one crazy person to read that and do something horrific. And then, yeah, all of your fancy policies become really, really clear as being inadequate. So I don't want to minimize this and say it's so obvious the answer and Facebook and Twitter are completely stupid. It's tough. But I think on balance, I don't think they get it right. I think they mm -hmm. tend to lean too quickly into let's cut it out, shut it down. Um, so one example I'll say is the Hunter Biden laptop story. I mean, it to me, even back then, it seemed so bizarre that Twitter would completely shut that down. Uh, okay, fine. It's not an authenticated laptop, but do you really think it's completely not newsworthy, not even to discuss? That seems weird. And then now, a couple of years later, the New York Times has recanted and said, oh, actually, the laptop, it, is, it has been authenticated. So I get that back then it wasn't, and maybe there was questions around it, but it seemed like a far cry to jump from that to say, therefore, we will not allow this article on our platform. Really? That, that seems rather egregious. So that's where I think they do get it wrong uh, sometimes. And then finally, mm -hmm. the last bit about what you're saying is, is really the chilling effect that, uh, you know, and, and has to do more closer to cancel culture, where you could say something that uh, some segment of the population feels is unforgivable, and then they just destroy your personal and perhaps professional reputation. And it does happen. It happens more than maybe the political left would like to acknowledge. Um, and that organization you and I are talking about, FAIR, um, they point to a number of good examples of this. There's even a database of it uh, being compiled. Uh, that is a real thing. And my uh, feeling on that is, once again, you know, the guys at Facebook and Twitter never thought about this so much. At Facebook, they genuinely thought that having your real identities was critical to having healthy discourse. But what it actually has turned out to be is having your real identities is just high, high risk. And just like you said, Iona, I'm terrified. I would never have any sort of sensitive conversation on Facebook 
because my real identity is there. In fact, I have lost a friend over some silly comment. I feel so stupid. Even now, five years later saying, I can't believe we ended a friendship over this. But yeah, that's it. Twitter, like you said, is better because you don't have to have your real identities, but it's got a whole host of other issues and and the political and sort of the, the mob can come after you there quicker. And how often do we hear about people where they go back and unearth tweets from years ago saying, see, this person is so-and-so. It's mm, just, yes, it's awful the way this is being done. But again, those platforms didn't think about these things. At the factual, we use anonymity and we use, um, we have a, a concept that will eventually invoke on non-permanency on things. People should be able to talk and discuss and then leave and forget. We can't hold everyone accountable to everything they've ever said in their entire lives. That's a horrible society to live in. It also really disables us from finding out the truth because yeah. we can't explore and think aloud. And You're not allowed to change freely. your mind. Mm, yeah. And the Hunter Biden laptop was an interesting example for me because I had absolutely zero interest in Hunter Biden or his laptop until um, the what? Post article was banned by Twitter. And then I thought, you know, is there something in this? And I decided actually there wasn't. At the time, I decided there wasn't. But I wouldn't even have investigated if Twitter hadn't banned the Post and that in itself became the story. Exactly. Yeah, it's just, there's this strange... Uh, again, maybe when you're operating at the scale they are, they have different considerations they have to make than what I do. But it strikes me as so odd an example of when you decide to ban something outright. I mean, banning should be really, really, really the very, very last thing you want to try, if at all. Because, you know, as as the ACLU famously said, they, they defended Nazis uh, and their right to speak because free speech is a principle to uphold with speech you like, and especially with speech you don't like. And again, private corporations don't have to comply, but they kind of are the de facto town square. It would be really nice if they did comply. Uh, it would Absolutely. build a healthier society. Absolutely. I think of it often as being like the tube, that um, the reason why um, mines and what are some of the others, Parley, and I don't know if Parley still exists, some of the other alternative social media uh, places and 4chan and 8chan. And um, I haven't actually in, uh, strongly investigated any of these, but I gather many of them have just degenerated into complete cesspits. And people are saying this is because of they have total freedom of speech, but actually it's the opposite way around. It's because Twitter and Twitter does not. Uh, Twitter largely, I think on Facebook, people are often self-censoring Correct. Um, because Facebook, I, for me, I think less because Facebook has your real name on there than because Facebook has real life friends on there yeah. interacting with you. Whereas tw in general, people don't interact with their real life friends on Twitter. It's primarily with strangers and online acquaintances, but it's, um, um, on the tube, for example, the reason why it's not very dangerous to take the tube on your own late at night as a woman, for example, is not because there are no creeps or rapists or harassers or other criminals on the tube, but because everybody else is also on the tube as well. Um, the tube is the great leveler. Mm -hmm. Everybody takes the tube. But if there were two public transport systems and one consisted of 
and everybody who was creepy had was thrown off the tube and forced to take the other system. Of course, that system would quickly become a very unpleasant place to be. You wouldn't want to take that alternative tube, <laughs> the kind of devil's tube. <laughs> um, and so that the possibility of creating a healthy alternative free speech platform is actually also stymied by not having free speech on the major platforms. Um, paradoxically, that's my theory, at least. I think that's true. Actually, I've never thought of it at that depth that you have. And I think the analogy of the two tier transport structure is a very good one. Um, yeah. And maybe sort of the, the larger parable is around how polarization is having all kinds of impacts in society. You know, we're sort of dividing and subdividing and people are sorting into groups that think like them and, and look like them or, or what have you. And the net, net effect is sort of, you know, when you, when you sort into separate groups because maybe people are like you or think like you, then you reinforce pre-existing beliefs and then you find the other group to be even harder to relate to. Um, it just creates all kinds of bad structures. And so, mm. yeah, you're, you're probably right. It is very hard for an alternative free speech platform to take off. But I think that might be if you think of it at the scale of maybe a Twitter and a Facebook. And it's not clear to me that that has to be true at all. First of all, right, Twitter right. itself is a weird slice of the population. You know, I like Twitter, but I think I can confidently say that most of the world is not on Twitter and the people that are on Twitter are kind of a strange segment of society. Mm. And yes, so we are. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, Twitter is not meant to be representative of the world. It's just a place to talk. And if it is, um, counterproductive or, or one side or what have you. Absolutely. There are other places to do it. Uh, it won't be as big, but who cares? Are you doing it for the vanity metrics and the likes and the self-reinforcing stuff of followers and tweets and all? Or are you doing it because you actually want to have a good conversation and understand something and maybe share some thoughts and see what people think? Then there's loads of other platforms. And, you know, the factual is one of them. It's, it's much, much smaller scale but it shows you it's yes. possible. And so I think as long as you sort of think, why do I want to have this conversation in this place? Then you can decide whether or not that place is good for you. I think Twitter has some great elements. Um, it's a wonderful way to connect to people who I might never meet in real life. Um, you can follow really interesting, intelligent people and find out about stuff that's cool and you might not find out about elsewhere. I think there's great stuff to Twitter. But I never use it for conversation. I just don't. I mean, occasionally once or twice I'll say something. Even a couple of weeks ago, it was strange. A good friend of mine from grad school, he and I almost got into an argument on Twitter, my first time ever. And it was so innocuous. And thank goodness I had the sense to at one point say, hey, I haven't spoken to you in a while. Should we talk offline and get coffee? It, we're due for uh, a catch up. And that was it. And we got off Twitter and it was so healthy. And yeah. so. I think we as society have to be better at knowing when and how to use these platforms as much as we want the platforms to also do the right thing. Um, and so some of the training is on us. It's on schools. It's on all of us to know this is a new technological age we're living in. Just like I remember my English teacher teaching me when I was in high school, you know, we used to have this, do you, I don't know if they still do this, or I don't even know if it's true in, uh, in the UK, Iona, but in Canada where I grew up, um, there would be like this week of no advertising 
or something like that. I think it was called Ad Free. Huh, nice idea. Yeah. And it was a really cool thing. And it, all the English teachers would then talk about, you know, the salient effects of advertising where you don't even recognize when you see it. What are they trying to sell you? Why did they pick this image? Why did they pick this message? And I still remember, this was from grade nine. I still remember it today, whatever, 30 years later. So I think similarly, we're going to teach all the kids and, and even grownups, hey, this is how Twitter really works. And this is how you should know when not to use it, when to use it, all these things. And then we, we do our part and then the platforms do their part. And that's, I think, the solution rather than just saying Twitter goofed up. Yeah, well, we as humans, we also goof up. We should know better and not use these places sometimes. Arjun, I, I just um, wanted to ask you maybe to finish off, unless you feel there's something else that needs to be said or needs to be discussed. Um, but as a kind of final question about the factual, I want to ask, um, do you think the, um, do you have any, let's call them wild guesses about how news might be consumed in the future? Do you think that there will be, um, how how might you envisage things looking a hundred years from now? Wow, uh, that's tough. God knows where. We <laughs> Maybe will that's be. too difficult. Question. A hundred years, I think, is is quite far out because probably twenty years ago, people couldn't even have guessed what we're doing now. Um, what what would you hope to see? This might also be too vague a question. If so, we'll just cut it. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think there's such good questions. I would say. Um, I think that the volume of information continues to grow every year and will be that way for time immemorial. So filtering, sorting, and uncovering high-quality information will continue to be an important problem to solve and will be even more important in the future than today. Um, there will be systems such as the factual or, frankly, the, or Google or anything that make it easier for you to find credible information. Presumably, the more transparent these systems are, the more they will be trusted over time. So you think about something like Google or Facebook, they're not transparent. And I think over time, people's affinity for these black box systems will wane if they haven't already. And they will want more transparency in how and why a system is recommending or curating or sorting or filtering. So I think that's true. Um, those are maybe as far as I could probably go. I, you know, you could say something outlandish like, oh, we'll all be getting news through VR headsets injected right into our brain or something like that. I don't know that I have any real data to back any of those things up. So I'm trying to boil it down more to sort of just principles around what will happen to information, how we get information, what we will value with information. because we're going to still want to be informed. Um, and so I think all that remains true. The interesting maybe overlay to all this is the impact that our political systems have on news and the impact news has on our political systems and the business models of the news and how they all interact. So that's a wordy way of saying right now in the US especially, we have these two sides that really just sort of fight each other on everything. And it makes for a combative adversarial setup. And that sometimes translates into the news. And, and then, you know, the news sort of supports its sides, which then translates into the more extremist points of view, getting more air coverage, um, 
and sort of increasingly feeling like the world is getting farther and farther apart um, when it's not actually reflective of humanity. And so what I would hope for is that the news business changes from being such a popularity-driven engine and finds a business model that better balances the needs of people who are reading the news and not driving them to extremist, sensationalist, clickbaity nonsense, because that has a very real impact in aggregate. It makes people feel anxious. It makes them feel alienated. It makes them hate other people for no reason. Um, And so I hope that the news landscape and all of us who participate in it, you, me, all of us, take our role um, seriously and say, hey, we're helping people to find good information. Let's be responsible. Let's make sure we give them all the context. Let's make them feel like they're well-informed rather than getting them angry. And, And if more and more of the news outlets do this, then I hope people come away with saying, okay, I'm informed, but I'm not angry. Um, that's, I think, what I would hope for in the future. That's, that's great. Thank you so much, Arjun. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Iona. What a wonderful conversation. I'm delighted to have met you and I hope to meet you in person someday. Uh, you're in the UK, so that seems quite feasible because I do come around there at least every year or two. So that'd be really nice to meet you someday. That would be lovely. Please do stay in touch and let me know if you're ever around here. I will, certainly. And uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for Have a wonderful week.